0: Well, we are back in the Gospel of John this morning, uh, having been elsewhere last week for Easter Sunday. And uh, this will be the the fifth and final sermon for us in Chapter 6. We have been in that chapter for quite some time. We're going to pick up where we uh, left off a couple of weeks ago at the very end of the chapter, uh, specifically verses 60 to 71. Uh, If you're using the Bible under the chair in front of you, Uh, You'll find that on page 892. So John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71. And as you're uh, turning there, as as you know, in life, uh, most relationships are never static. Uh, They're they're always on the move. There's always something happening, active and developing for better uh, or for worse. Uh, I think of my kids' friendships on the playground or at school. You might think of relationships that you have. With uh, family and friends. Uh, you might think of a couple that's dating. Are they gonna get married or will they break up? Uh, you know, inevitably, most all relationships move toward what Mark Johnston calls either commitment or collapse. And that's the case for our relationship with God. Because we all have some relationship with God. Now, I'm not talking about a saving relationship at this point, but He is the Creator and we are His creatures. And so in that way, we all have a relationship with him. And at some point, every person must respond to God and his gospel. Uh, To use the language of Joshua in the Old Testament. Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day whom you will love. Whom you will follow. And it's toward that defining moment in their relationship with God that Jesus directs his hearers in the verses that we're about to read. So a couple of weeks ago, we wrapped up with uh, what you may remember is known as the Bread of Life Discourse, uh, the bulk of chapter 6, where Jesus says things like this. Verse 35, I am the Bread of Life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And then the gospel writer John uh, points out that, that this teaching took place in the synagogue at Capernaum. And he shows how the whole episode became a defining moment in the relationship between Jesus Jesus. In the vast majority of those who were following him. And you may have noticed in your reading that there is a significant contrast between the beginning of chapter 6, which was just one day earlier. I mean, for us it was six weeks ago. For them, just one day earlier, Jesus had a crowd of 20,000 or so around him and then when we get to the very end of our passage at the end of chapter 6 we find that Jesus is basically alone with the 12 and one of them is exposed as a traitor that brings us to our passage John chapter 6 verses 60 to 71 let's pray and then we'll hear God's word our good Lord we thank you Once again, for your word, uh, for your your written word, uh, through which by the power of your spirit, we are able to see the living word, Jesus. So we would ask now that once again you would open us to your word and your word to us, that you would enable us to hear and to see that we might believe in him all the more. Amen. And so, John chapter 6, beginning with verse 60, hear the word of God. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And this is God's word. Now, you may have noticed in the reading uh, that the passage breaks into two scenes. It it begins with Jesus and the crowd, and then it ends with Jesus and the twelve. And what John is showing us in these two scenes is the nature of false discipleship and true discipleship. And so that's how we're going to look at the passage. First false discipleship and then true discipleship. So we begin with false discipleship, verses 60 to 66. Here again these words. After this, the false, the superficial discipleship of many was exposed. We see in, in verse 60 that, as I've mentioned already, we're dealing with the larger crowd. It's a crowd that's, that's been, bu- been building since uh, the beginning of the chapter, the feeding of the 5,000 uh, just the previous day. And it has continued to grow, to gain momentum, to pick up speed throughout Jesus' teaching in the synagogue. People are hearing about it, and they are coming, and they want to follow. But then, with this teaching, they complain. They say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, what is the it? Who can listen to it? Uh, just a moment ago, I, I read what Jesus had said a few verses back, back in verse 53, where Jesus said that they must eat his flesh and drink Now, if you're familiar with the story, you go, yeah, I've heard that before. But if you were at a gathering like this, and someone were to be standing teaching you, and to say, for you to really get what I'm saying, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, you would think, that guy is crazy, that is ridiculous, and that is offensive. Get him out now. So that's the hard saying. It's hard to accept. So the, the Greek word for hard is scleros. It, it's where we get our English word sclerosis. And here it doesn't mean hard to understand, though clearly this is very, very deep with meaning. Uh, but rather it means hard to accept. So the, the people are complaining that it's hard to tolerate. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. It's offensive. It is Too hard to swallow. Now, when I think about that, it makes me think of my my own kids. Okay, they get a cough, we want to give them cough medicine. Oh, the nasty cough medicine. Now, I tell them that they need to talk to their grandparents about nasty cough medicine. I know those of you that are retired, you may remember some of that nasty stuff. I guess it is better, but still, they think it's nasty from their point of view. So when we tell them they need to take it, They know what we're saying, but they think it's ridiculous. It's hard to accept. It is absurd. Mom and dad, this is too hard to swallow. So that's a a bit of what's going on with the people. Obviously, uh, much more extreme. And so Jesus challenges them with a question, basically saying this. Oh, if you think this is offensive, then wait until you see The real offense of the gospel. Wait until you see what it takes for me to ascend back to my throne. When I am lifted up on a cross for you. Wait until you see the scandal of the cross. What it takes for me to save you helpless people from your sins. And then to help us along as readers... John makes it clear that Jesus' words are to be taken spiritually. As biblical scholar Craig Keener puts it, Jesus is not speaking literally as if they are to eat his literal flesh. Jesus speaks of life through the Spirit. That's what he says in verse 63. Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. In other words, the flesh, human effort and reason, it's not going to cut it. It's not going to get you anywhere. It's the spirit who gives ability, understanding, and acceptance. It's the spirit who gives real faith and thus real life. As James Boyce writes, People have said, Wouldn't it have been wonderful to have known the Lord Jesus in the flesh? Wouldn't it have been glorious to have walked with him, to have heard his voice, to have traveled with him as he moved from place to place during his three-year ministry? Oh, how much easier to believe. I suppose that for some it would be wonderful. But the interesting thing is that many in Christ's day did just that but nevertheless did not believe, and eventually turned back and no longer walked with him. Knowing the Lord in the flesh did not necessarily mean they'd believe in him. It's only through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that we can understand and accept what Jesus says and what he did. And Jesus says, the Spirit gives life. And this is why I told you, and he's referencing back to verse 44, a couple of sermons ago. And this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Unless the Father has enabled him. You see, we must understand that the whole of salvation, that every single blessing that we have from God, every single blessing from above, is a gift. A gift to be received with humility. Not a reward to be earned in any way, shape, or form. Not a reward to be earned in our own effort because we can't. Because we are unable. And ultimately, that is the offense. You see, like the crowd, we usually don't want someone to lord over us. We're fine with people doing nice things, good things for us, but to lord it over us, no, we we prefer the miracle maker, the miracle man, who just earlier, the the day before, could take five loaves and feed over 5,000 people. I mean, that's the kind of Jesus that I want. Here's my need. Could you just fill it, and then I can move along. You know, it's kind of the uh, the genie in the lamp type of Jesus, where I just want to rub the lamp. You know, let's keep it spiritual. I want to rub my Bible, Jesus comes out and says, yes, what would you like? And I say, Jesus, my first wish is, or again, I put it in prayer so it sounds more godly. But I tell Jesus what I want, he gives it to me, and then I can go on, right? Amen, hallelujah. Now, we all do that to varying degrees. I mean, if we take any time to really look at our prayer lives, at times we can catch ourselves punching the button on the Jesus vending machine. But here's the difference, okay? False disciples are marked by this. False disciples are marked by turning away and no longer walking with him when they don't get what they want. Hey, I've tried, I have decided to try it. I decided to give Jesus a chance. He's just not given what I want, and so I'm going to go try something else. I'm going to walk away. So that, that, that's false discipleship. But true disciples are marked by recognizing... What's going on in their own hearts and continually turning back to Him. Continually turning back to Him in repentance and faith. God's continual continual wooing of us in our responding to Him, trusting Him for what we really need. Trusting, in fact, that He knows what we really need. Even and especially when it's not what we really want. And that leads to our next point. And so now we come to the the sudden turn in our story. We come to true discipleship. Verses 67 to 71. And so the vast majority have just turned back and walk away. And Jesus turns to the twelve and says, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Okay, so as I pointed out, it's clear that we've shifted scenes here from Jesus in the crowd to now it's Jesus and the twelve, those original disciples, and so that means we move from the hard saying at the beginning of the passage to now we we, we come to the hard question. Verse sixty-seven. Jesus said to the twelve, "Do you want to go away as well?" Now, it's important for us to note, and I I want to make this clear, because we could lose it if we're just reading it quietly to ourselves. This is not Jesus with a pity plea. Like, oh my goodness, I just had so many followers. I had a great megachurch, and I said something offensive, and they've all left. You guys don't want to leave me too, do you? That is not at all what Jesus is doing. No, Jesus is offering a challenge. Jesus is clarifying the hearts of these 12 men that he is speaking with. He is drawing a line in the sand. This is, what's it going to be? Red pill or blue pill? Reality or masquerade? It's time to choose. What's it going to be? And then to help us out, John does something else here in his writing. He then names specifically Two of the twelve. He names Peter and Judas. So let's talk about Judas for just a moment. Let's skip down to the last couple of verses. uh, Verses 70 and 71. Jesus answered, did I not choose you the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So this is the first time that Judas is mentioned in John's gospel. And uh, the, you know, this is somewhere in the first third or so of the gospel. Uh, but Judas is now mentioned. And, and John is doing a couple of things here uh, to help us as readers. For one, he is giving us a clear reminder that Jesus is on the road to the cross. That Jesus knows who he is, where he is, why he is here. And where he is going. But he's also doing something else. John is also giving us a clear contrast between Peter and Judas, between true discipleship and false discipleship. John is making clear for us that mere association with Jesus and his followers doesn't automatically make a person a true disciple, a true follower of Jesus. So what does? And that takes us back to Jesus' hard question. Do you want to go away as well? Do you want to go away as well? Which then, of course, begs another question, what makes you want to go away? What is it that makes you want to go away? You know, for most, if not all of us, it's, it's hardship, it's difficulty, struggle, suffering, disappointment, loss. It's when life gets so hard, so unbearable, and it just doesn't make sense. And so whether consciously or not, we begin asking somewhere inside of ourselves, is it really worth it? Is it really real? So one area of my life that's continually difficult, uh, that's, that's daily difficult, really. Uh, some of you know that I, I struggle with chronic fatigue. Uh, and, and I have for, for quite some time, for many years. In fact, it was back in my mid-twenties that I first went and saw a series of doctors uh, about it uh, and then uh, did so again uh, just a few years ago. Now you might not notice on a Sunday morning because uh, I'm I'm an extrovert and so the extroversion can easily mask it when I'm around a lot of people, uh, it can, you know, give me a sense of energy. You know, plus for me it's not debilitating uh, like it is for some. Uh, but nonetheless, it is still limiting and difficult and thus very frustrating. Now, as I look back over the years and, and I look back into my 20s, uh, you know, I realized my youth compensated for it a lot. I was younger, I was just naturally stronger, and so it, it didn't seem as bad. I had something to, to lean on, my youth. Then I rolled into my 30s, and things started getting a little more difficult. I began to notice it a little bit more. Then we had three children in quick succession, and we all know that children give anyone chronic fatigue. (laughs) But, you know, seriously, the the older I get, the more difficult, the more challenging it becomes on a a day-to-day basis because the less natural reserves I have. And yet, that's what I really want. I just want to be able to be strong and energetic on my own. And so I began, you know, because it is so frustrating, I can easily start spinning in the if-onlys. You know I'm talking about? Where it's, you just, if-only. If-only this, if-only that. Sometimes it might become prayer. But it's the, you know, if-only God, you would lift this fatigue from me. If-only you would grant me the energy... That I need, that I see other people have, if only. God, don't you realize that I could be a better husband, a better father? I could be a more effective pastor and, and preacher. God, don't, don't, you know, don't you care? But the bigger question is this Do I trust Him? Do I trust him and him alone? And Peter is faced with that question. And his response, verses 68 and 69. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, to whom shall we go? Now, over the, the years, I've often wondered if Peter is, is just simply resigned at this moment. I don't know, but I mean, think about it for a moment. He's already experienced, in just the past day, being at the end of himself. He has already had to come face to face with his own inabilities, and limitations at least three times in just chapter 6. So if, if you think back, you know, there's the feeding of the 5,000. Things are going great. There's the inner circle of the 12. They're hanging out with Jesus. He's doing a great job teaching. And then realizes it's late in the day, 20,000 or so people, Jesus turns to the 12 disciples and says, you give them something to eat. What? This is crazy. We have nothing. He goes, Then bring that to me. And he takes their nothing and he multiplies it and he provides abundantly for the people through the disciples. And then the episode ends and it's time to go across the sea. Jesus says, Get into the boat, go, go across. We'll, we'll have a rest. They're like, I got this. We've done this plenty of times. Get in the boat, there's 12 of us to row. And we'll get across. Storm comes up. No big deal. Sea of Galilee has these all the time. We can handle this. But all of a sudden, Peter, along with the rest of them, is faced with his inability to even row the boat forward in the face of this particular storm. But once again, Jesus provided and got them where they were going. Or just even a few moments earlier in our passage, I mean, I think of just the excitement that must have been a part of those 12 disciples over the, the past day. They've been following Jesus, and here's Jesus front and center stage. And But, you know, they're the inner circle. They're close to Jesus. And there are thousands of people now, a part of the megachurch; They're on staff at the church. And how exciting. We are on the winning team, Team Jesus. And then he says something ridiculously offensive, and the people leave. They're gone. Is it really worth it? Is it really real? And Peter says, yes. Yes, I I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. But it's all I've got. Now maybe he's resigned, and maybe he's not. But regardless, either way, Either way, he is expressing true faith. Why? Because he is looking to Jesus and to Jesus alone. That's all he's got, and that's all he needs. Bruce Milne says the only true security is having no security. Accept the mercy of God. Leslie Newbigin says, to truly believe is to have been brought to the place where you know that you have to completely rely on Jesus and on Jesus alone because there is nothing and no one else. It is ultimately Jesus plus Nothing. To whom shall we go, friends? There is no one else. Now let me end with this. It's this one of my favorite illustrations. Uh, some of you will be familiar with it. it comes from uh, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, those beloved books. Where, if you are familiar with them, you know that we continually encounter this great lion, Aslan the Christ figure uh, throughout the stories. and In the book, The Silver Chair, we meet a, a young girl named Jill Pole, uh, no relation to Ron and Jan. But we, we encounter Jill, as she has fallen asleep in the woods. And she wakes up, and she is alone and afraid and dying of thirst. And she begins to hear something that sounds like water, and so she begins to walk towards it. And of course, the closer she gets, the more and more she realizes it's water. And she is just, again, she is dying of thirst. And so finally she comes to the edge of the woods and and there's a great green open space that leads right to a flowing stream, cold, fresh water. And she is so excited, except there's a problem, a big problem, because between her and that stream is a huge lion and it is just staring at her. "'Are you thirsty?' asked the lion. "'Oh, I'm dying of thirst,' said Jill. "'Then drink,' said the lion. Uh, "'May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do?' asked Jill. "'The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. "'And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. Oh, the delicious, rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will will you promise not to do anything to me if I come? asked Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Oh, Jill was so thirsty now that, without noticing it, she had come a step closer. "Do, Do you eat, girls? she asked. "'I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, "'kings and emperors, cities and realms,' said the lion. "'It didn't say this as if it were boasting, "'nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. "'It just said it. "'Oh, I dare not come and drink,' said Jill. "'Then you will die of thirst,' said the lion.' Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I I suppose I must go and look for another stream. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. To whom shall we go? There is no one else. He's all I've got. And he's all I need. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the living water. He is the great lion who gave his life for us on the cross. So that we could live through him by faith. And so friend, no matter how difficult it gets. No matter how frustrating No matter how painful, emotionally, spiritually, physically, relationally, financially, whatever it is, whatever you are facing, Jesus is for you and Jesus is with you. He is with you now and just as he promised, he is with you to the end of the age when He comes back to make all things new and to resurrect you and me and all who have looked to Him in faith, on that day, the last day, He will raise us up. And it will actually be the first day of His forever kingdom of joy. And so, friend, trust in Jesus. Trust in him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. He will carry us home. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, we give you thanks this morning. We thank you that you are with us and that you are for us. And we thank you that you are all we need. And so we pray, we believe, but help our unbelief. Help us to trust you in all things. Amen.